Hello and welcome to Map Bites, episode 149. I'm Mike Thomas and I'm here with my co-host Elaine Giles. And in this episode, it's an early sunset on the dark side with Amazon droning on. Another week, another ticket tech fail at Old Trafford. If you remember from when I talked about it a few weeks ago, we've been forcibly moved from our regular seats. They're the ones that we've held for 30 years. And the reason? The Premier League, UEFA and probably the UK government have insisted that a sterile zone be created around the area where the manager and subs sit, which isn't altogether a bad thing. However, our seats are literally within touching distance of the manager and substitutes area. I would say spitting distance, but as this sterile zone is COVID related and a number of our players have tested positive, it probably isn't the best phrase to use. Anyway, United versus Villarreal in the Champions League last Wednesday at Old Trafford. For cup matches, the club are sending out the tickets via email on a match-by-match basis. The email has a PDF attached, which is the printable ticket, but there's also a button embedded in the mail, and this allows you to add the ticket to your digital wallet on your phone. Now, you may remember United's last-minute implementation of a new tech-based ticketing system that clearly wasn't ready for prime time. As we predicted, there will be issues, and indeed there are. It came to Tuesday, the day before the match, and our tickets were nowhere to be seen. As we weren't going to the game, I didn't actually need the tickets. Our tickets were being used by friends, so theoretically I could just log into the United website, select the match from the list of matches, and forward the tickets to our friends, which is what I did. All was fine until I came to the Review the Order and Checkout screen. The review your order screen showed a price of £50 and a you need to pay £6 message, which of course is the difference between £50 and £44, which is the normal price of the ticket. No explanation as to what the £6 was for. And it was a moot point anyway, because the proceed to checkout button was greyed out. I clicked the bin icon to remove the tickets from the basket. I waited a few minutes and tried again. Same thing happened. There was a small countdown clock on the screen. You get 15 minutes to complete the order, as long as the checkout button is active, of course. So I thought, I wonder what would happen if I ran down the clock. Would the transaction be aborted? Certainly couldn't be any worse. So I left the review the order screen and went and did something else. On my return 15 minutes later, a message popped up to tell me that time was up. So I clicked on a button to exit from the review the order screen and another message popped up, one I've never seen before. A potentially dangerous request detected in one of the fields. Please correct the offensive value and try again. I did Google it and back came several websites, mostly fans forums for different clubs. So it looks like many clubs are using the same booking system with the same bugs. Anyway, I decided that it was time to email the club. Within 20 minutes, I got a reply. I was very surprised because going off other people's experiences that they post on social media, I expected to have to wait for hours. Possibly the quick reply could have been the politeness of my email. They apologised for the problem and told me that the ticket had been reissued. And sure enough, 30 minutes later, I received an email with two PDF tickets attached. But that still wasn't going to help me forward the tickets to our friend. Although if the worst came to the worst, I'd have no option but just to forward on the mail. 
You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to transfer it officially through the website's ticket transfer system. But loads of other people do it, so I think the club are turning a blind eye. Well, they don't want another riot on their hands outside Old Trafford, do they? So I wrote back. I thanked them for issuing the ticket, but that doesn't help me forward the tickets. 20 minutes later, another reply. If you log out and log back in and re-attempt this, it should be working. This reply, however, didn't address the £6 additional charge, so I wrote back. In addition to asking about that, I said, I have logged out, I've cleared my browser cache, and I've used a different browser. 20 minutes later, a reply came. I believe this may be caused by the fact that the seat that you were moved to may be a higher priced one than your original seat. We can attempt to resolve this over the phone. Are you able to call us on? And they gave me a phone number and an advisor will be happy to help. If you're not able to, please provide us with the best time to contact you. So I wrote back and told them that we didn't choose to relocate and that the seats were chosen for us by the club. And even though they were in the executive section, we wouldn't be charged a higher price. I also said that regarding their suggestion of calling them, Last time I did that, a couple of weeks ago, I was on hold for over an hour. So I asked them to call me back the next day. So the next day arrived, match day. I turned DND off on my phone. I wasn't expecting a call back, but at 9.45 in the morning, the unexpected happened. United called me. You know, when I was a kid, if I'd have got a phone call from Manchester United, I'd be lost for words. It would be like Sir Alex himself had called me. But no, it wasn't Fergie, it was Stephanie from the ticket office, who, as it turned out, was very helpful. She explained that there was a problem with the system, yes, another one, but she was able to override the £6 charge and forward the tickets on. So, success. Although I never did get to the bottom of the £6 charge. But like I've said before, it really shouldn't be this difficult to attend a football match. And all of that is before we even consider actually getting into the stadium. There's that many security checks, it takes an age. First, you have the police wheelie bin check. That's about a quarter of a mile from the stadium. You're frisked for bottles and cans at that one. Hence the wheelie bins to deposit them in. Then nearer the stadium, there's the bag check. If the bag is too big, and I think at the last measurement it was too big if it was more than five inches, then you have to deposit the bag in the bag crash, for which you pay handsomely. I think that's five to six pounds. Then there's the sniffer dog blockade. Not joking, you have to run the gauntlet of a pack of hungry sniffer dogs. It hasn't actually ever been made clear what they're sniffing out. It could be explosives or maybe pills of an adult nature. But if you're not too fond of salivating dogs, you're in for a tough ride with that one. And they're still not done yet. Next up is the magic wand test. This is where you have a 12-inch probe run all over your body. Again, checking for what, we're not sure. But the folks with the probes seem to enjoy themselves. A lot more than I did, I can assure you. Finally, there's the indignity of the physical hands-on pat-down. Yes, they have a guard at every entry gate and they won't let you in unless they physically pat you down, which proved very interesting the last time I went as I was wearing a skirt. Trust me, I was not submitting to the type of pat down that they subjected all the ladies in front of me to. Now, while they were wearing jeans, it was still most inappropriate. And you wonder why we find it a relief to watch from home when we can despite the monthly fee for the privilege of doing so. 
This week saw the great Amazon Autumn event. Sadly, or maybe not, I found myself double bought for it. So, you took one for the team and watched it for both of us. Well, I would have done, but the lack of any kind of live feed put paid to that. I did start following a live blog, but they played somewhat fast and loose with the term live. Updates were delivered at carrier pigeon speed. Still, there were some new toys. And if Amazon want us to buy them, may I request they actually let us watch the launch events live in future. But what did we get? Well, first announcement dealt with privacy. Soon you'll be able to have all of your voice requests processed locally on device instead of the cloud. And this applies to Echo Show 10 and the current Gen Echo devices. I was suspicious. Why was that the first announcement? Soon all would be revealed. But the next thing on the agenda was Amazon's smart thermostat coming in for just $59.99. Priced to rival Google Nest products and pre-order started straight away. Apple could take note of that. This thing's made in partnership with thermostat experts Honeywell and the A-Lady can control the devices. It also supports routines. Are we buying? No, never have the heating on. Not had the heating on here since the late 70s. Our tech heats the house. We really don't need to worry about it. Then there was the Blink Video Doorbell. Just what I need. Another way for people to disrupt my life. I could quite happily live without a doorbell. And but for the Amazon man, I could happily live without a front door as well. But here we have yet another smart doorbell. The unique selling point of this one? Two-year battery life, which is impressive. Next up was the 15-inch Echo Show. Run by Amazon's new AZ2 neural engine chipset, no less. The display is full of widgets to drive your day. It can do live camera views as well as picture in picture and it's got apps. In fact, there's promised to be a Sling TV app and similar ones coming down the line. $250 for the privilege, though. Mm, I think I'll be skipping this one. Then there was Mickey's Echo. An Echo with Mickey ears. Sadly, not even joking. It's a partnership between Amazon and Disney and it's hideous. So um, move along, nothing to say. We don't need any tech with Mickey ears. But just as I was recovering from the horror of that one, I was faced with a completely new horror. Amazon Glow. No, it's not what you're thinking. Unless you weren't thinking of toys of an adult nature. And I'll admit, I was. Once I'd seen it, though, it was actually worse than that. It's a small black device with a built-in projector. It projected a game onto the table in front of the device. And the use case demonstrated was to help kids call their grandparents. The old folks on the screen, while a game or a reading projection, is seen on a table in front of the device. Partners providing content include, yes, Disney, but also Mattel, Nickelodeon and Sesame Street. I'm sure the grandparents will be absolutely thrilled to sit and watch their grandchildren staring at a game and paying $250 for the privilege of doing so. Not. Anyway, next was Halo View. A much more reasonable $79.99 will get you the Halo View fitness tracker. The best feature of which? The promised seven-day battery life. But beyond that, buying? No, got an Apple Watch. And only have two wrists. 
Hmm, I'll work on that one. Then there was the ring always home cam. This is where <laughs> this is where it got ridiculous. The Amazon Ring Always Home Cam drone is a repeat announcement from last year, but now it's graduated from Apple's Experimental Day One program, which means standard availability for $249.99. What's special about this? It's a drone. It's a small drone, but it's a drone. It can fly around your house and check around corners. What could possibly go wrong? Well, I suspect there are cats and dogs the world over plotting to take out these drones. It wouldn't stand a chance here. Lola would have it grounded within minutes. Well, either that or she'd destroy the house trying. A miniature drone flying around inside your house. The mind boggles. Then there was the Ring Alarm Pro, which has now developed into an ecosystem. It's not just the keypad included security system. It's absorbed the Eero Wi-Fi 6 mesh router, which explains the price hike. And in addition to the keypad, there are now window and door sensors and a doorbell camera. And the monitoring service that ties the whole thing together for a monthly subscription fee, of course. Will we be doing that? No, no, we won't. But, oh, the last one, they saved the best for last. Amazon Astro, the digital lapdog that follows you around. He has eyes that blink and autonomous movement. He can map your house and has visual understanding. And all of that for only $999. No guarantee you're going to get one, though, not even if you want one. Astro ships as part of the Amazon Day One programme, which is invitation only. Think of it as being vetted to see if you're good enough to buy one. Are we applying? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Lola would go absolutely ballistic. I think if Lola wanted a, a brother or sister, it would have to be a fur-based brother or sister, not something digital that blinks at her. And Maya, oh, if Maya was here. No, it would last all of 30 seconds. So it was a shorter event than the last few that ran to over two hours. This one was just over half that time. But I still think a live stream of the event is virtually required these days. I don't understand Amazon's logic with this. But let us know. Are you dying to add a drone to your home or maybe an Astro? We need to know these things. Get in touch. Let us know. Well, there's good news and there's bad news from Timmy for you this week. First, the good news. Common sense prevails. Relating to what? The iWork apps. No, not the real update that I've been waiting for the last 10 years for. So just a tinkering around the edge then. But never mind the features. They've got rid of those absolutely hideous icons. The ones with the weird shapes in the background. The 60s psychedelic throwback icons. The new ones, much more Apple-esque and subtle. So that was the good news. The bad news? The apps are no longer supported on Catalina. So much for supporting the current OS and one version back. I know the full Monty is imminently incoming, but still. They did exactly the same thing last year, which is how I ended up doing the Catalina thing in the first place. So, good news and bad news on the iWork front. This week in Back to Basics, I'm looking at calendars. 
the challenge was to use the built-in calendar app on both mobile and desktop. But before I talk about the challenge, I'll give some background context. On the Mac, I've used BusyCal for years. In fact, I'm still using it as my primary calendar app. But as you'll know from previous shows, it's gone subscription. Not a won't pay, we'll take it away subscription, but a won't pay, you won't get the updates subscription. All our calendars are hosted on Google. And as I said last week, I've used Gmail in a browser for years. So you might ask, why don't I use Google Calendar in a browser? Well, the main reasons for me are the way that the browser handles ICS files and the way it displays overlapping events. An ICS file is a text file that contains details of an event, duration, date, URL, etc., etc. Systems like Zoom, WebEx and so on automatically create them. I get a lot of ICS files from companies that I deliver webinars for and for online events that I attend. If I open the email that contains the ICS file in Gmail in a browser, I can click on Yes, I'm attending and it automatically adds the event to my Google Calendar. However, not all systems generate that type of email. Some systems generate an email containing a link that you click to download the ICS file, and then you have to manually add it to your calendar. To add a downloaded ICS file to a Google Calendar via the browser takes seven steps. In BusyCal, I can drag and drop the downloaded ICS file straight into the calendar and it creates an event. Google Calendar in a browser displays events that occur at the same time as overlapping, which to me looks messy, whereas BusyCal displays them side by side. Although the disadvantage of that is that the text inside the blocks that represents the events wraps, so it's often more difficult to read. It's personal preference, I guess. Despite BusyCal being my go-to calendar on the Mac, I never used it on the iPhone. Until it went subscription, I used Fantastical, which was fantastic. It's over a year since I used it, so I can't tell you all the fantastic features it had, and I'm sure they've added many since, but it was a great app. I think I went from Fantastical straight to using the Google Calendar app. Or maybe I dabbled on the dark side, meaning Outlook, of course. I seem to remember possibly dabbling with the built-in calendar app too. But I didn't get on with it, which, considering the challenge that I've been undertaking this week, is a little bit disconcerting. Anyway, on to the challenge. Before I talk about my week with the calendar app, following on from last week's challenge, I wanted to let you know that I'm still using the built-in mail app on both iOS and the Mac. Enough of why I use what I use, though. You want to know how I got on with the challenge. Well, interface-wise, both BusyCal and the built-in calendar look similar. Both apps were already connected to my Google Calendar and my Work Calendar. And that's actually another reason that I didn't like using Google Calendar in a browser. The fact that I couldn't open my Work Calendar in Google Calendar meant that I was unable to see my entire day on one screen. Not the fault of Google Calendar, but more the security at my work end. Now, BusyCal has a panel displayed on the right-hand side of the app's window, known as the Info Panel. And as you click on an event in the calendar, the Info Panel displays information about that event, such as the start and end time, the start and end date, 
the event title, any URLs that might have been added for a, a Zoom meeting or the address for a physical meeting. You can also use the info panel to amend details of the event. The calendar app has its own version called the inspector, which is a poor imitation. Firstly, it's a floating window, which means that it can be placed anywhere on screen. It never opens in the same place twice, and I like to know where my windows and panels are. BusyCal's info panel is highly customizable in terms of what information can be displayed, whereas Calendar's Inspector only displays basic information about an event. Although having said that, I've hidden most of the fields that can be displayed in the info panel, so my BusyCal info panel pretty much resembles my Calendar Inspector. I did make an interesting discovery. In the Calendar app, if you switch to Day View, which I don't do very often, I tend to work in week view, a panel appears on the right-hand side of the calendar screen. It's an info panel without being called an info panel. Clicking on an event displays the details of that event and allows you to edit the details directly in there. Now, this isn't a full BusyCal versus calendar comparison. It's a how I got on using calendar for a week. And the answer is okay. Apart from the info panel, and the fact that the overlapping events overlap rather than appear next to each other, it's actually a very usable app. I don't think a week, though, is long enough to really get down and dirty with it. I didn't have any heavy lifting to do. I manually created a few events, I edited a couple of events, and I dragged and dropped an ICS file to add an event. I think that was about it. So on to iOS. To ensure that I wasn't tempted to use Google Calendar, I moved the app icon to the last screen and moved the calendar app to screen one. Like the desktop, I tend to work in week view, so once I've set the app to that view, it tends to stay that way. But if I need to switch to day view or month view or even three day view, it can all be done with a couple of taps. Unlike the built-in calendar app, which requires you to switch the phone to landscape mode in order to display week view. And because the phone is in landscape mode, left to right, you can see seven days, but top to bottom, you can only see three hours. You can pinch to zoom in, but you can still only see five hours. I much prefer the Google Calendar app where I can see seven days and 12 hours in portrait mode. Plus, I actually don't like holding my phone in landscape mode. It feels unnatural. Unless, of course, I'm watching football or something on TV. So I'll be honest, I couldn't wait for the week to end so that I could get back to using the Google Calendar app. I'm not surprised. That's exactly how I feel about the built-in calendar app. It's the things that aren't configurable that bug me. I'm happy enough in a browser, but I do use the pre-subscription version of BusyCal for the heavy lifting. The main feature missing from Google Calendar for me is the ability to duplicate an event using the option key and dragging and dropping the appointment. It's just not there. Obviously, it is in BusyCal. In Google Calendar, you have to right click and eventually you will stumble across the duplicate option. But it actually opens up a window and then you've got to type in the time and the date, which it's just so much faster to hold the option key and drag and drop. Oh, if only Google Calendar would add that. But in the absence of that, no, no, I still need BusyCal, sadly, especially given it's a subscription right now. So next week's challenge is Apple Notes. I'll be leaving drafts on one side and seeing how I get on with the Notes app. 
moving on from my challenge, how did you get on with your challenge to live on the dark side for a week? Well, I think it was best described as a throwback to an old MacBytes meme. The good, the bad and the ugly. I must admit, prior to the system-wide dark mode option, there were a handful of apps where I did choose to use dark mode. Ulysses was probably the first one I switched to dark mode, and I just much preferred it, but then it is a writing app. Actually, I only make the editor dark. The file list on the left and everything else is still in light mode, but it works for me that way. But I, I actually do find it a little bit overwhelming if the editor interface, the actual text part of it, is light. So that one's a 50-50s. Do you remember Terry's Moonlight from the 70s? Box of chocolates with light chocolate and dark chocolate in. Yes, it's that. Another app I've always preferred in dark mode is the Kindle app. The light mode is just blinding. It's just far too white, especially at night, even with the brightness turned down. But there's a sad sorry saga with that. I also use Audio Hijack and Farago in dark mode. They just look way better in dark mode. And both of those do have the optional dark mode built in. I remember trying Snagit in dark mode a while back. It wasn't the latest version. It was a couple of versions back and it was bigged up as one of the big new features. There's a dark mode in it. So it was way before there was a system wide dark mode. And I remember thinking, oh, that might work quite nicely with Snagit. So I put it into dark mode. It was diabolical. Not only did it look bad, but you couldn't read half the interface. It was terrible. So no, I had to turn that one out of dark mode. Interestingly, Camtasia, the default interface is already dark and there's no real option. And it's absolutely fine. I've used it that way for that long. I think it would look weird in light mode. But once dark mode was available, many apps stripped out their custom implementation of a dark mode expecting users to be happy to rely on the system-wide setting. Why? Are they Muppets? I have no problem with there being a system-wide dark mode with a single caveat, as long as it doesn't negatively impact me. In other words, don't move my cheese. Most definitely, don't take away an option that's already there. Choice and options should reign supreme. If you had an option for light or dark mode, you gave your users a choice. A custom choice specifically for your app. Take that away and the only choice that I've got is a global one, which is exactly what happened with virtually every app I had in dark mode. And I mean by that in dark mode by choice. Ulysses ripped their dark mode implementation out. Their users went mad. It was swiftly reinstated and they apologised for not realising the impact of removing it. And the impact of removing it was if you had Ulysses in dark mode, but the rest of your device in light mode. Once that option was gone inside the app, you had no other option but to deploy dark mode system wide. At least they realised where they went wrong. Kindle, on the other hand. Oh, that's another story. Their proprietary dark mode had existed for years. I'd implemented it for years and suddenly it vanished from one device, but not another device. Both these devices had exactly the same version installed down to the last point. In one, 
the option was there to toggle on dark mode specifically in Kindle. And in the other one, the toggle just wasn't there. So I had two different interfaces on two installations of the same version of an app. What was going on there? A search later and I discovered custom dark mode had indeed been removed. That didn't explain why one device was still showing the option. But needless to say, Amazon were not as responsive as Ulysses in terms of adding it back again. And eventually, after a reboot of the device that did have the dark mode option specific to Kindle, it vanished. So after Mike issued his challenge and the Kindle app blinding me, I did the deed and I turned dark mode on. So first the iPhone and the iPad. It's very, it was very dark. It was like the brightness was turned down for me. But at least the Kindle app was restored to its former glory. However, the mail app was a nightmare. I could cope with the dark interface. It was the dark mails that were a step too far for me. The actual content of the mail. And the images on a white background stood out like cat's eyes on a motorway. Depending on the exact format of the content of the mail, some mails were indecipherable. And it did make me think maybe we should check the content of our mails. We check what they look like in numerous clients, but we hadn't up till this point checked for dark mode. Generally, the actual folders within each screen of the device just look so dark that they managed to merge into the background. I guess that could be fixed with a different wallpaper. Some widgets look OK, others less so. So the clock looks fine. The things widgets viable. It's light text on a dark background in dark mode. The Kindle widget uses a custom background that's the same in light or dark mode, so no problem with that. But the Audible widget has a very dark background. It's not that bad, though. You could live with it. But the calendar, oh, that looked diabolical. So for me, it was Google Calendar and the Google Calendar widget I was using. It has a dark background, but that is nothing in the change of the colours of the events. The colours are a mile off what they're supposed to look like in light mode. And the text on top of those appointments is actually black. So with a darker colour than you are used to seeing and black text on top of that, on a black background, I, I, no, I've no idea what I'm supposed to be doing next. I also personally find the notes app in dark mode completely off-putting. It's white text on black lined background paper. No, it, it's just not for me. I much prefer the implementation of dark mode of GoodNotes. In GoodNotes, the interface is dark. So all of the options at the top of the screen and the canvas behind the actual page, the notes page, is all dark. But the notes page and the ink are the original colour which is also how numbers and pages have implemented it. The interface is dark, but the actual data is light. That just makes more sense to me. So on the iPhone and iPad, I could cope with full-time dark mode if I had to. I much prefer it for the Kindle. So what I've decided to do is to add dark mode or the toggle for dark mode to my control center. So I can easily toggle dark mode on and off when I'm using the Kindle app. But I still think app developers should understand that some of their users want certain apps to be an exception to the global setting and thus they should provide an option. It's lazy not to. And you do have to think about accessibility. Accessibility isn't one global setting for everything. 
It's much more granular than that, much more nuanced. So then I moved on to the desktop. Oh, dark mode on the desktop was even more of a challenge. I did not cope well. Finder looked weird. Pathfinder, even worse. Even Alfred threw me. It was a blessing by the end of the week to be able to turn it off. It's clearly not for me. But as I've said, there are apps that I specifically do use dark mode in. And for those, I'm happy that I have that specific option. It should be compulsory to provide both light and dark options. So what about you? When the apps first started using dark mode, I was like, why? But as with many things, eventually I succumbed. I think initially it was just to see what the fuss was about. But having tried it, it genuinely does feel better on my eyes. I've got Ulysses and I've got Craft set to dark mode on my Mac and they work well. But I did try it with the Teams client at work, although I did change it back because I found it difficult to use. This is one of those things you never thought you'd be saying, but I won't spoil the surprise. I'll leave that to you. Only half a lifetime after everyone else. Drum roll, please. I spent Sunday doing the Biggles thing. If you're wondering, why not Saturday? Ah, that's easy. Saturday was backup day. It was also live show day, Brooklyn saw 96 by request. I did contemplating doing the Biggles thing on Saturday afternoon, but sagely sanity prevailed and Sunday it was. First job was to unmount and unplug all the external drives. I still remember an update from over 10 years ago that wiped all attached external drives. Mentally scarred from previous updates much? You betcha. Before I even got going, Mike's Mac was throwing errors at mentioning OS 9. Unnerved? Oh yes, but I pressed on. I pushed the button. And after about six minutes of a 13 gig download, I was soon at the point of no return. How much worse could it be, I thought. And I closely followed that with be careful what questions you ask. I made a copy of the installer to the scratch drive belt and braces, or belt and suspenders in the US, but that's a whole other scenario in the UK. And all of this was happening in the midst of Mike's CSS crisis. There's a common thread here, isn't there? Mike stressing me out. Anyway, 4.44 and the button was pushed. No going back now. 35 minutes later and I was presented with the Biggles home screen and a million permission requests. After wading through all of those, the first essential update was Bartender. Bartender 3 only works up to Catalina. For Biggles and Monty, you need Bartender 4. Handily, I had already bought the update back last November when I Biggles to my MacBook Air. It's got a lot more options than version 3, so there's one positive for updating. Next on the list was Remote Desktop. An update pending since November 2020. And that's because Apple didn't provide support for the current OS and one back. Just a Biggles only version of remote desktop. Doesn't seem to be that much different, but at least it's finally done. The first thing I had to change was the display of the clock. The default configuration takes up half the menu bar. That had to go. Why is there no option to display the date as a number like Fantastical on a little digital implementation of a desk calendar? My sole use for Fantastical back when I used it. Obviously, that was pre-subscription. I now use an app called The Clock, 
which also, as the name implies, shows the time. But more importantly for me, it does display the date as a little number. I used to turn the system clock off, but Apple aren't big on letting me do what I want anymore. That's no longer an option as the clock controls the display of the notification centre. What I can do with it is turn off the date and change the digital clock to show as an analog clock, which is much smaller, neater and still allows me access to the notification centre. DND is a pain though because it now displays an extra icon. Previously, you knew you were in Do Not Disturb mode because the notification centre icon dimmed. This is not an improvement, Apple. We need a more linked up strategy here. On the upside, oh yes, there was, there was an upside. Apple's calendar app hadn't worked for me since I installed Catalina. It just generated error after error every time I inadvertently opened it. Pickles fixed it. I opened the calendar and with no intervention whatsoever from me, it just worked. Been a while since I've been able to say that. However, Naughty Naughty Biggles decided to remap my AIFF files to open with Apple Music. Point one, that's rather rude, since I manually mapped them to open with Twisted Wave. Point two, I've never seen Apple Music before. Last time I played any music from Apple, it was in iTunes. I don't know what decade that was in, but never mind. Anyway, I live to tell the tale of my Biggles update, and I am now living in a post-Biggles world. Next up, the full Monty then. <laughs> Not this year, it isn't. I'm sticking firmly to the if it isn't broken principle. And thankfully, with this update, touching wood, there is nothing broken. Not saying it any louder than that, but there's nothing broken. Not yet, anyway. Incoming toys too last week. Yes, I decided to treat myself. I managed to find an alternative to the Apple Pencil for just £21. It's called a Sisal Stylus and it looks great. It's the shape of Pencil 2, including the flat side, but it's in a two-tone finish in white and grey. The white at the top is the finish of Pencil 1, so nice and shiny. But the grey where you grip the pencil is the matte finish of Pencil 2. There's an on-off switch at the top, which is literally just like using a biro, where you push it in and release it to turn it on and repeat that to turn it off. That, when it's on, shows a tiny blue light on the barrel, indicating that it is actually turned on. It's also magnetic, just like Pencil 2, hence the flat side. It's very secure when you put it on the iPad, at least as good as Pencil 2. But it doesn't charge that way. There is a separate charging cable included. It's like a tiny cup that magnetically attaches to the top of the pencil. And at the other end, you have a standard USB plug. Just plug that in wherever you charge stuff. There's actually no pairing required between the pencil and any of the devices that you're going to use it on. Which is great because that means you can use it on multiple iPads with no loss of time switching between them. Like Pencil 2, it's capless. It's about one centimetre or just under half an inch shorter than Pencil 2. It doesn't support double tap to change the tools. But to be honest, that works when it feels like it. And more importantly, I find with Pencil 2, it activates when you don't want it to. So it switches the tools just through general handling of the pencil. Now, this alternative doesn't support pressure sensitivity, but I really didn't feel a difference. A professional artist might, 
but it would be a close call. You do have tilt to change the stroke width. There is absolutely no lag whatsoever. In use, I can't tell the difference between this one and Pencil 2. It's a game changer for price sensitive folk. So, for example, Mike's mom has got an iPad, but there's no way she'd be spending £129 on a pencil. But £21 is a totally different matter. I actually already have four pencils. I've got two pencil ones and two pencil twos. And I still bought this alternative. And actually, I'm really happy with it. Even better, you can buy six extra spare tips for just six ninety nine. It's definitely worth a look. I have put the link in the show notes. I think that's the best bargain I've had all year. And I am actually using it. And obviously this week it was like use this for a week and compare it with Pencil 2. But I can certainly see situations where I would actually prefer to use this one. So particularly in terms of this putting it on the side with the magnet system, it's fine if you've got your iPad on the desk stood up like I have with a pencil on the top. But the second I put that iPad in a bag, the pencil will fall off. If I were out at a conference, and I know it's been a while, but if I were, I think I'd take this other one with me instead rather than risk losing £130 worth of pencil. I'd much rather risk losing £21 worth of pencil and just replacing it. And as I say, there's actually nothing, as far as I'm concerned, that's critical that this replacement one doesn't have. So best bit of kit so far this year, I think. This show is being released on the 5th of October 2021, a day which marks 10 years since we lost Steve Jobs. We could try to recall our memories of that sad day. But after we listened again to MacBytes 56, we knew we couldn't do better. And we certainly wouldn't be able to capture the raw emotion of how we felt. So here's our original tribute to Steve Jobs from 2011. Hello and welcome to a somewhat sombre MacBytes. As you're all no doubt aware, this week saw the sad passing of Steve Jobs. And we'd like to dedicate this somewhat shorter episode to Steve. We're actually recording this on Saturday the 8th of October, a day which marks the fourth anniversary of the very first episode of MacBytes. In fact, several of you have mentioned in emails and messages to us that this episode of MacBytes is number 56, which is of course the age Steve was, so this one's for you Steve. MacBytes was born out of our local Mac community and a desire to share our passion for all things Apple. Little did we know that in four short years we'd be part of a global Mac community mourning the loss of its inspirational leader. And I really do mean four short years, but wow, what a ride. Just to take you back to October 2007, iPhone 1 had yet to arrive in the UK. You played your music via a click wheel on your iPod and it felt like you were in the future. Uh, Working mobile meant carrying £20 of kit around with you. There was no such thing as a MacBook Air. And the iPad, well... That was just the glint in the eye of a genius back then. I can't actually remember the first time that I heard the name Steve Jobs, but it must have been back in the early 80s as I was working on the cutting edge of technology then, programming my Sinclair Spectrum and getting to use an Apple II at work and later at university as well. I was aware of him, but back then I had no idea what an impact he was going to have on my life. First time I actually heard of Steve Jobs was when he was running Next. I used to read the computer weekly magazines at work. 
I was aware of Apple and I was aware of Macs um, during my, my early working life. But I was, as most people know, brought up in a DOS and a Windows world. And I actually never used a Mac until 2006. I certainly didn't realise what an impact it'd have over the next what, four or five years and beyond. Um, certainly see my productivity increase. Uh, I've, I've certainly learnt how to work on the road, work mobile. Well, I've had to uh, look at a Windows 2K machine. Uh, it was on a Mac. It was a virtual machine. It's one my father uses. And seriously, I know I joke about Windows, but when I left Windows, I was using Windows 2K and XP. And having spent an hour with it, I seriously don't know how I ever managed to do anything with it at all. I did, of course, do plenty with it. But once you've used a Mac, you do tend to look back and think, I don't know how. And that's really how I feel. I don't know how. And I admire you that you do that on a daily basis at work. You do have to suffer. I do. And the the Mac has given me the opportunity to do things that I've wanted to do. Um, that, that having seen colleagues try and do it at work on a Windows machine, having tried to do things myself on a Windows machine, things like video editing, audio editing, um, and, and even things like just keeping your calendars up to date on, on multiple devices, certainly what Steve has given us has made it much, much easier. As the owner of any product, you'll probably know what I mean. But when I first switched, I did evangelise. Um, I evangelised to people because I wish somebody had done it with me sooner. I've clearly mixed in the wrong circles. And quite a few people did switch. They did. You uh, Probably about half a dozen at our, our local trainers group have switched through your your enthusiasm and your evangelising. Evangelising, I think is the word, isn't it? Yeah. To be honest, I've stopped doing it because <laughs> if you're still using Windows these days, you just don't get it. And people can be quite antagonistic. I feel sorry for them that they that they don't that they're not open-minded enough to give it a go, but each to their own, I guess. I didn't have the privilege, of course, of knowing Steve personally, but then he didn't have the privilege of knowing me either. But the thing was, it certainly felt like he did. He always knew what I was going to want before I did. I know exactly what you mean, yeah. It Be it software, features of software, and sometimes you'd look at a product and you'd look at some software and you'd say, no, 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 I don't want that. Even something like, I remember looking at iMovie for the first time and being completely horrified. But guess who's using Final Cut Pro 10 now and loving it? <laughs> I'm not saying it's exactly iMovie, but I was horrified. But, you know, we we say it a lot on Mark Bites. Steve was right. Steve knows best. But for me, Steve's enduring legacy is the Mac community. Yeah, and it's a great community to be part of, isn't it? I follow and I'm being followed by about 500 people on Twitter. The majority of them are Mac users. And the thing is, I know that those guys think like me. We all think different. So I know this is pretty short, but it was really just some personal thoughts that we wanted to share with you. Yeah, really just to pay tribute to the man who's changed our lives. Yeah, I'd like to sum it up with, I think we live in the future now. And that's thanks to the, the vision, the drive and the brilliance of one man. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve. 
so emotional. I can hear the emotion in my voice. I don't think either of us expected to get as choked as we did. Rest in peace, Steve. Gone, but never forgotten. Today also marks 14 years since the very first blog post appeared on the MacBytes blog. We were T-minus three days from the launch of the very first episode of MacBytes on the 8th of October 2007. It seems like yesterday in some ways and an age in other ways. Still, we will have a bit of a party during MacBytes After Hours on Friday. That will be the 8th of October, the very day itself. And fear not, we're not about to play episode one in its entirety. You could, of course, take this opportunity to start a MacBytes marathon. Anyway, talking of MacBytes After Hours, we're going live again on Friday with MacBytes After Hours. We have more on the updates to the iWork apps. We have some real world Affinity Publisher. Mike's delving into the Excel data model. And then there's an important Scrivener session. We've been deep diving Scrivener in our Mastering Scrivener series, but this week we're starting the deep dive of the compile feature. Compile is where the magic happens. You can create virtually any kind of output from your Scrivener content, but the key is to understanding the compile. And this session is our introduction to compile, so don't miss it. And that's it for this episode of Matt Bites. As always, we'd love to hear from you, so send your questions, comments, and queries by email to the crew at macbytes.co.uk or use the contact form in the website. And of course, we also have a very active Slack chat room that's open 24-7. Go to macbytes.co.uk slash Slack and join in the conversation. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter at twitter.com slash MacBytes. And you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So until the next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. What a wonderful day. Pardon? I said what a wonderful day it is. Are you on something? I am merely high on life. You clearly know something I don't. You know it all right, you just haven't joined the dots yet. Go on then, tell me what it is, and join the dots for me. She's finally done the Biggles thing. I know that, but why does it make for a wonderful day? Doubtless stuff will break and she'll be in a foul temper. That could describe any day here, but the difference is she won't be blaming us. It's like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Biggles will be getting all the earache while we're home free. Gotcha. Perfect. And then there's the other thing. What other thing? I've asked Alexa to put in a good word for us regarding Little Astro. Little Astro? Yes. He is a mobile helper that we can outsource most of our hated jobs to. The robot thing you mean? That's the one. Not much use here I wouldn't have thought. Are you mad woman? He'll be a godsend. For all the fetching and carrying we are expected to do. You haven't twigged yet, have you? Twigged what? Astro has little wheels doesn't he? I believe so. Maybe you could explain how he intends to overcome the Dalek defect then? What's the Dalek defect? The fact that she virtually lives in the office upstairs and all her toys arrive downstairs. And? And, 
Just like the Daleks, how is he supposed to climb the stairs? Oh, damn it. <laughs>